So, we are <clears throat> still in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and technically, I'm not going to be teaching from the text today, because we had, uh, last week, I had handed out a chart, which has now been revised slightly. Um, you want to help out? Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, of a list of the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And as I was thinking through of how to um, deal with the various topics and issues, I thought it would be a good idea for us to focus on the topic of the spiritual gifts as a whole, as found in the New Testament. So what we're going to see here is that you have this chart which I said I had revised a little bit um, because if we're going to be looking at the text in 1 Corinthians 12 and then later on in 1 Corinthians 12 and then over in Ephesians and then again in Romans we need to have our definitions straight so last week as a recap I went over a variety of things here are things going off a little bit okay yeah, it's, it's real high feet squeaking at you. I know you can't hear it, but that I'm glad I'm glad I can, <laughs> because Lisa keeps telling me I need to go see a doctor for my lack of hearing. But we all know as husbands that that's usually selective. What? <laughs> Uh, it's whenever she's talking, it's like, what? I, didn't, I don't remember ever hearing anything like that. So anyway, um, <clears throat> as a recap, and you're looking at this chart, you'll notice a few things. There is no definitive, single, single definitive list of the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. Even the list that we have here don't agree. Um, the order that they are presented is not important. There are some who have said it's a hierarchy, and it's not, because the hierarchy doesn't connect when you put them all together. There's the question of, is this all of them? Or are there more beyond what we have here? And last week I brought up uh, the C. Peter Wagner uh, book on the gifts of the Spirit where he adds the gifts of martyrdom, voluntary poverty, celibacy, hospitality, uh, the missionary, the intercession, and exorcism as other spiritual gifts that are not listed in the New Testament. We didn't answer that question, I just raised it. We asked, what is the source of the gifts? It's the Holy Spirit. What is the purpose of the gifts? for the common good, which we found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I have to pause right there because I have a, a, uh, it's nice to be married to a brilliant Greek scholar who uh, said, it bothered me when you used the word sympheron, which means translated as common good, as a correlation to the word symphony. Remember I made a big deal about that? They're not the same word, not even close. I was lazy. I just made a uh, assumption based on the first letters of symph. So I thought symphiron, oh sure, symphony, that's what it's like. Well, no, symphiron actually does mean something like the common good. Symph means uh, to be together, and phiron means to bear fruit. So together you bear fruit is symphiron. The word symphony, the phonia, is sound. So phonetics or symphony is the coming together of sound. They're two very different words. I made the mistake of uh, assuming that they were related and they're really not. But anyway, the purpose of the gifts is the common good. The recipient of the gifts are every believer. Everyone who becomes a Christian receives at least one spiritual gift. Now, then the other question is, who gets them? And what do they get? 
So that becomes a question that many people uh, start asking, uh, you know, well, what's mine? And is mine better than yours? And which created some of the chaos in the Corinthian church because some were saying, well, we have these and these are spectacular. And oh, you, yeah, you go in the back room and you, you make us lunch. And well, we are out here doing the good stuff. And that's a problem. There is no hierarchy of the gifts. There is distribution of them to everyone. And there is at least one that is yours. I believe that people can be gifted with more than one. There are some would say that it's, that's not true. But before we dig into all the various gifts, we have to define what they are. So I spent, let's just say way too much time approximately three and a half hours creating this chart for you. Um, yeah, that was kind of crazy of me. So I have this chart here. I'm going to have you do this side and I'll take this side. Um, what I've done in this chart is list every one of the spiritual gifts that are found in the New Testament and organize them into five different categories. We've got handouts here. And we have the leftovers from earlier. Now, we are going to be spending our entire class based on this chart. First thing you have to look at is that I have grouped the gifts in five different categories. You will see the large header, and they all start with the letter D, and this is taken from uh, this book that I held up last week, Stan Jantz's book, Fire and Wind. So it's not original, the structure's not original. Uh, but I thought it was extremely helpful so that we can group the types of gifts together to help us define them and to understand them. So first you have the, the discerning gifts or the power to know. Then you can come down halfway down the page and you see the dynamic gifts, the power to do. The next page, the discipling gifts, the power to instruct. The disposition gifts, the power to serve. And lastly, the declaring gifts, the power to say. Now, you might say, well, what's the whole point of this exercise? Well, let me just tell you, the spiritual gifts has become one of the most divisive things in the entire Christian church. As I mentioned last week, entire churches are built around these. We've had a separation in the evangelical church in particular, but even in the Catholic church, you have a charismatic renewal wing of the, of the Catholic church. The Lutheran church, I actually worked with the author, um, Larry Christensen, who was the founder of the charismatic movement in the Lutheran church in the 60s. He wrote a book on the tongues in 1965 that basically, for met metaphorically, set the church on fire. I didn't work in back then. I was in elementary school. Uh, but I got to work with him in the last book he ever wrote before he passed away uh, quite a few years later. But anyway, um, you have these extremes that we read about. You have, a, you have Christianity Today, which is supposedly, that's, well, supposedly reflects the evangelical, more conservative side. Not necessarily anymore today, but it kind of does. And then you have Charisma Magazine, which represents the charismatic movement. I subscribe to both. I also subscribe to Christian Century, which is the liberal wing of the Christian church. And boy, that's a fascinating thing. They're the ones who uh, uh, recently did an entire article on why it's so good to uh, uh, pray to our plants and ask for forgiveness for how we've treated them. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. It's really, there's a liturgy for plants that they're creating. Anyway, um, boy, what a great use of time. 
sorry. Uh, but then you just, so you have these separations and it all comes down to how you understand these. And not necessarily all of them, but only some of them. You have the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, and the gift of prophecy. Those are the three that just cause people to kind of lose their minds as we look at them. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to kind of walk through some of these issues. I highly doubt we will get through all of them in this hour. My plan is that if we do, I'll be surprised. If we don't, we'll pick up where we leave off. And then I've got other issues that I want to bring up next week uh, when we talk about the difference between cessation, the ceasing of the gifts in the first century. There's a group that believes that. And the groups that believe that they have continued to today. That separation. And then another topic I'll be looking at are some of the, uh, let's just say, uh, more visible or, how uh, should I say, um, uh, media-worthy revivals of the Charismatic Church, like the Brownsville Revival and the Toronto Blessing and the, the Laughing Revivals and all these various things, even the Barking Dog Revival. That, yeah, believe it or not, that's another one that's out there. You have all these things that are related to this, but we have to set the foundation first. That's why we're going to go through this exercise and try to define each one of the gifts in turn. And please, this is interactive. I will try to lecture what I can, but I want to hear from you because I don't know your backgrounds. You may come from, or I've experienced some of these, or and, and personal testimonies related to, the, to these gifts are actually very helpful. So, this first section, the discerning gifts, the power to know. We have words of wisdom, words of knowledge, and discernment. Now I try to define each one of these, and these definitions are not rigid. I'm happy to revise them. Um, but when you look at the idea of wisdom versus the idea of knowledge, they sound so similar. In fact, D.A. Carson said, I can't really tell the difference. Now, in our English language, we, dis we have them as two different things. In the Greek, wisdom is the word Sophia, and the word knowledge is the word gnosis, where we get the phrase gnostic from, to know versus to be wise. If you remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes extensively about wisdom. I'll just read from verses 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This is all the word Sophia every time. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So that sounds like, you know, secular or worldly wisdom is a bad thing. Well, obviously. And the wisdom of God is a good thing. And then we come right here, only a few chapters later, and we have Paul talking about the gift, the spiritual gift of wisdom, a word of wisdom. Solomon sought what? Wisdom. First Corinthians, First uh, Kings nine. He was asking God for wisdom. 
In Proverbs, which we attribute to the authorship of Solomon, he writes in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, that the Lord gives wisdom. All of chapter 2 is about seeking wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10, this says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's repeated over in Psalm 111, verse 10, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, the definition I have here is to apply God's word or wisdom to a specific situation in a way as to make spiritual truths relevant and practical. Now, you might go, well, what does that mean? My guess is that every one of us has met someone who's really wise. Where they just seem to have this innate sense of what's right in a situation. And then you also have met people who are not. They seem to just be bouncing around and have no sense of what's wise. They just seem to be pulled one way or the other depending on the way the winds are blowing in society or in their life. You can see right away, you can see what wisdom here is trying to convey. Now last week, when I had handed out this chart, uh, if you were to compare this one to last week's, I had made the uh, decision that I felt that wisdom was the same line as teachers. As you notice now, it's not. It's on its own line. Because through discussion, through reading, um, it's actually knowledge that's closer to teaching than wisdom. So let's just go to our next one with words of wisdom. Words of, no, I'm sorry, words of knowledge. Throughout church history, the gift of knowledge has often been viewed as a teaching gift and connected with being able to understand scriptural truth. So this would be someone who is it's very close to the concept of teaching. Uh, let's just put it this way. You might have sat under someone who is a teacher, but they're not very good at it. They seem to have knowledge, but they really don't. And their presentation of it is there's, there's something missing. And you're going, wait, that, no, that's not right. You haven't done your research or you've made leaps of logic that don't make any sense. And that knowledge, this gift of knowledge or gnosis, is to be able to connect various things under the guise of spiritual truth. I mean, I'm not talking about physics or uh, biology necessarily. But do you understand the difference? Am I making this clear or am I muddling it? I mean, I've been meditating on this all week, but you have the difference between wisdom and knowledge and the fact that Paul separates them in the text. There's a couple verses I want to read related to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.23, uh, I'm sorry, 8.2 and 3. If anyone imagines that he knows something, gnosis, he does not yet know as he ought to know, the gnosis again. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then over in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We have this verse, verses 9 and 10. And so, from the day we heard, we have, ceased, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So you can see there's parallels. Wisdom and knowledge, 
but they are two different ideas. All throughout Paul's writing, he distinguishes between the two. Now, if you notice in the... Hmm? Go ahead. Sorry, yeah, please. So, something, yeah. so this is in favor of the distinction you're making. So thinking of secular philosophy at right. the time, <clears throat> wisdom was always connected with the practical, the way of life, right? Okay. So uh, wisdom was kind of the expression of someone who had reached many years and gained a lot of experience and knew how to do things. It's like a knowing how to do something, right, in the right way, at the right time, sure. in the appropriate manner. Uh, whereas knowledge is kind of more like we would think knowledge is... Head knowledge. Head knowledge, yeah. Okay. Now, that may not be the way Paul is necessarily using it, but that would be something... It's a good connection. For example, you could have someone who could read all the manuals on how to fix a car, but they've never actually seen a car. They have all the knowledge. And then they walk into the car and they go, oh, and then they go back to their manual. The guy who's been doing it for 35 years walks in and goes with his nose and goes, oh, that's the carburetor. How do you know that? Well, it's the wisdom of years. He has that practical application of the knowledge. Now that from a spiritual standpoint, I think they are two separate things. Because one just simply means you can grow from knowledge into wisdom. I'm not sure you can. But it's interesting from a philosophical standpoint, there is a difference between the two. <clears throat> now you notice over in my right hand, oh, sorry, Lisa has something to say. Um, well, an example of a more division, you mentioned Solomon. So he asked for wisdom and the example, one of the main examples, the most famous example in the Bible, is not something that he knows, a bunch of technical knowledge, but is in the baby mm -hmm. and his decision to divide, you know, the well, we'll divide the baby and each mother take a part. That's wisdom. That has nothing, that's not a knowledge, that's that gift, and that's what God chose to use as example of wisdom. So if that's a real clear distinction. Sure. sure. It's almost as if a, a difference, this is where you can almost go to the difference between the wise Solomon and the knowledgeable rabbi. A Gamaliel. A Gamaliel. He knows. I mean, he, had, he, could, he could probably quote the Bible backwards. Oh, wait, Hebrew is written backwards. Um, so, sorry, I'm kidding. Um, but he could do it backwards before he knows everything. But does he have the wisdom to apply it? Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Nicodemus and his interaction with Jesus at night? Is that a good example again, you know, of Nicodemus was operating in knowledge, but Jesus was almost rebuking him and saying, you got all this knowledge, but you don't... You don't really understand. ...understand the way things work. Whereas Jesus was always referred be. to as someone who spoke with authority in that it was beyond just simply knowing all of the verses in order. Mm -hmm. Of course, the difference here, we have to begin to be careful when we're making our comparisons, even with the Gamaliel. He did not have a spiritual gift. He wasn't a Christian. So you have to understand, if we, if we approach this, we need to make sure we create some very firm barriers in our discussions of all these words because the spiritual gift is one thing. A talent, it might be God-given, but it's not a spiritual gift. The difference so in that case, I'm not sure it applies yeah. because Nicodemus was inquiring. But then Jesus said, no, we don't know what happened to Nicodemus after that. Mm -hmm. Who knows? I mean, we became obviously part of the movement, but really what spiritual gift did he have? No idea. Never discussed. So if you notice over in the right-hand column in the knowledge section, <clears throat> Under the word I have, Greek word gnosis, I have some see this as a spiritual ability to have knowledge of something that would be impossible to know without divine revelation. <coughs> there would some say that that's actually wisdom. But this is where the English language breaks down. Because you could talk to somebody and say, well, they have the gift of knowledge, which means they just know. They just simply know. There's no way they could know that. 
But I'm not sure that's what is meant by the gift of knowledge. That is actually more likely a description of wisdom. See how this gets messed up? And this particular uh, grouping of these two, because they're so similar, I wanted to explore this and kind of say, how can we pull them apart? Because Paul does. And he does it more than once. And so you have to, now not, not, as, not in the list of spiritual gifts, but in other places he talks about knowledge and in other places he talks about wisdom. Are they the same? Are they different? But in this particular case, he does separate them. All right, number three, the gift of discernment. Now, this is the Greek word diakrino, which means to distinguish. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through... Uh, this is why I number my pages. Seriously, I, I number these because I have this fear of my notes falling on the floor, which they just did. I think there's some wisdom in doing that. There's some wisdom in that. <laughs> but is it a spiritual gift? Of course, I have this grand theory that the book of Jeremiah, that, the, uh, that his sec- secretary, Barak, forgot to number the scrolls. And when he went to Kinko's to reprint them, we get today's book of Jeremiah because it's not in chronological order. And somebody, he dropped them in the parking lot. Just, <laughs> just print them like that. We're in a hurry. Anyway. That's a really bad joke, but, uh, you know, you have to live with it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now remember, this is just the previous chapter. Verses 29 through 31. For anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning, same word, the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So this idea of discerning or to be able to distinguish, he's already alluded to, and then, bam, just a few verses later, he talks about the gift of discernment. And the gift of discernment, or distinguishing the spirits, is another translation, it's the only one, only time it's ever listed in one of the spiritual gifts, just like knowledge and just like wisdom all by itself. But I will say that this definition here, to clearly distinguish truth from error by judging whether or not a behavior or teaching is from God or Satan, is an absolutely critical gift in the church. Absolutely critical. You can have someone who walks into the church and suddenly spouts off what seems to be brilliant and wonderful and glorious and God-glorifying. And if there is someone, hopefully, in the church with the discernment gift, can look at that person and go, they are evil. They are not here to build up the church. They're here to tear it apart. And then they are willing to call it out. This is a unique gift. Very unique gift. Um, I don't have any personal examples. Uh, you might, guys might have if anybody has ever seen or seen anything like this or knows of someone this way. But man alive, there are a lot of, let's just say, less than stellar teachers and preachers out there. And uh, you might say, well, I have, I can figure it out. Yeah, I mean, there is a common sense element to it. And each one of us is asked to distinguish or discern, but the true spiritual gift can see behind the veil into the spiritual realm. It's yeah? not just in the element that you're talking about, it's in every Explain, life. explain. Well, it's not, it's not just as someone coming into the church, but it's just looking outside, it's being in the grocery store, it's being there's awareness of dark and light. Okay, so in other words, it's not just the example I gave, but it's basically being able to discern the spirits. 
That's that's the ESV translation to discern the spirits. I think of Jim Jones in Jonestown. Okay. Where he drank the Kool Aid and all died. And that's a, I mean, that's a pretty graphic. Very graphic, just because there was no one who discerned that guy as being an evil. Well, there was, but they weren't listening to him. Well, they didn't travel with him. Yeah. The ones that did didn't have the discernment and ended up dying. Yeah, I mean, there's. These kinds of things, you know, those are the grand examples. Lisa's talking about the more, uh, let's just say, the everyday. You walk into a situation and there's this sense that something's wrong. Yeah. Well, also what occurs to me too, we're talking about this discernment, is the people uh, in the first century did not have this. Right. So They had the Old Testament, but not right, the New Testament. So they didn't have all these teachings that we have that we can refer to. So that gives you a whole other dimension of mm -hmm. this particular gift. That's a good point. It's a really good point because, again, these gifts are for what? For the common good and for the good of the church. To build the church, to grow it, to protect it, to help it move forward. And if, again, if you think of back at that day, you know, if Paul, maybe the teachings of Paul were starting to circulate, and we know it was, but then you had, in the Corinthian church, they were getting all messed up. Which meant discernment wasn't alive and well in their own congregation. Okay, let's go to the next one, the next section, the dynamic gifts, as it's called here. The power to do. First one is faith. Faith is only mentioned in this first list in Corinthians. And I have a definition here to be confidently convinced of God's power and promises to accomplish his will and purpose, to believe God for the miraculous. And if you notice over in the right-hand column, I have the word confidence here, literally means with faith. That's the meaning of the word confidence, means with faith. This is a, a, a difficult word to define because faith has many definitions, even in the New Testament. For example, to accept Christ as Lord and Savior is to have faith. That isn't this. That's not the gift of the Spirit. That is an act or an action on the part of the supplicant. The one who is asking for God to come in and it's a matter of faith. We, in our English language, we have overused this word to the point where it's almost meaningless. There's a lot of these words here which we overuse. You know, if you want to say, okay, it's, it's fourth down, 16 yards to go, fourth quarter, we're behind by six. Just have faith that we're gonna complete the, the pass because we have football today, so anyway. But think of that, we use that phrase. Um, no, that's not the biblical word, we know that, but that's, we use it the same way. To have faith in the miraculous. That would never happen. Well, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. One guy wrote, he said his definition of faith was to trust God based on his word. That's a good definition. We have over in Mark chapter 11. Let's get this. 20, verses 22 and 23. This is Jesus talking. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. It's the same Greek word, pistis. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but the believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe and you will receive it and it will be yours. And the word believe there is the Greek word for faith. So this idea, if you have enough faith, God can do anything. Well, is that what this means? Do I have this right? That's not a rhetorical question. How, do you, how would you describe it? Someone says, well, what is the gift of faith? How would you define it? Well, the definition you have here promises to accomplish his will and purpose to believe for God and miraculous and then couple it with your uh, according to God's word, although I don't think that's the gift of faith, that's what every, faith everybody has. But that's why that the name of claim it for people it doesn't work with the verses you just quoted because exactly. it has to be in, in, in is this for the purposes and will of God and for his glory and his fair uh-huh. consistency with the rest of scripture. But right. it is that belief in the uh, one small example might be a, a husband and wife in a financial situation, and the husband is, sees the fine lines, the details, and the wife just knows, just knows it's going to be okay. And it's just that faith. Mm-hmm. And, and Believing in the miraculous. Believing, but, but there's that excess, there's that. And it's not a mindless, it's not a mindless no, belief. No. It's not a Pablum saying, oh, well, yeah, everything's going to be okay. That's not necessarily faith. That can just be self-talk. But it's the true gift of knowing that this will happen. Yes? Well, in your definition, uh, the word miraculous, that seems to me is the crux. Because that means that under any other circumstances, it's not possible. Hmm. In other words, I think that's really where this comes in. It is Would you say that's that you, a good word to use or not? Well, yeah, I think that I think that's the key word okay. to understand, rather than just faith, because you say there's so many different types of faith. And, mm-hmm. and I, but the miraculous is something that cannot possibly happen otherwise, mm-hmm. without divine intervention. Exactly. The belief, the true, confident belief that this will take place. The power of faith, the prayer of faith. The believing. Now, faith doesn't necessarily mean that it actually is going to happen either. It's this confidence that it will, that in God's economy and God's belief, because otherwise you can then, the danger here is faith then becomes a coin that you put into God's vending machine. And if you have enough of these coins, <clears throat> out will come the result that you were asking for. And that's where you mentioned the name and claim it group in the charismatic movement that says, if you have enough faith, this will happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. And I've, see, I've talked to people who got absolutely crushed by their church who said, you're, um, you lost your job because you didn't have enough faith. Or it's worse when, like my friend who had a muscular dystrophy, people would pray for him and say, mm-hmm. and they would say, oh, you don't have enough faith. Right. They're using that as, a, as, a, as if that's the magic coin, and it's not. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> with all the spiritual gifts, right, what makes them spiritual is that when we see them, we're pointed directly to God's glory. There right? you go. And so, um, what impresses me most is like supernatural faith. When I see it, I go, okay, that didn't come from that person. It's often the faith of the person who's suffering through something and doesn't expect their suffering to end, but yet trusts that God has used this as part of his plan, right? So the, That's a really the friend example. who had muscular sure. dystrophy had that She faith had faith. faith. He, he had faith. He had very impressive faith, right? That God was going going to use this for His purposes. Yeah. That's a that is a gift of faith, or not necessarily the faith that He was going to be healed, right. even though He would want to be. We think of um, uh, Matt and Cameron Dodd, the missionaries in Papua New Guinea, who had to come back and you know, die of 
brainwaves right. here. But there was this impressive, like, this doesn't come from him working really hard. This came from the Holy Spirit, yeah. that faith that... That's a good point. That's a good example. Yeah. yeah I think when you were describing, um, you know, those who try to, uh, to gin up enough faith. Good word. That is self-generated as opposed to... God-generated. And that, I think, is really a, a real defining point of how to look at this. You see how healthy this discussion can be and how easy we can fall into the commerce of faith? That it becomes something that if you have enough of, and that is not what's being discussed here. Not at all. I wish... Yeah, well, granted, we could do an entire Bible study on the, on, on the concept of faith, but again, then you're running into all the various definitions. And it's almost as you wish Paul would have just taken a moment and say, could you just add a paragraph here to help us define this? Because you just have this list and you just, oh, the gift of faith, and he moves on. And everyone's going, wait, what? What is that? Help me understand what that means, because we're right here trying to define it, but I think, again, we go back to it's a spiritual gift that the origin is of the Holy Spirit, not of us creating faith. And why did God give us the Holy Spirit if we already have right. the writings? You said, why didn't Paul go further? Well, he doesn't need to. We have the Spirit of God mm -hmm. to fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking of, I saw by faith Abraham, you know. Like Perfect, exactly. The Chaldeans and went where God told him to go, not knowing where it was going to be. Mm -hmm. So the faith, I mean, he already, he already had a relationship with God. The faith was to go do this thing God said him to do. And then I read my note, and I know that's how my note explains it. And <laughs> his, and his used, faith was counted unto him as righteousness. Right. So in the Old Testament, faith had that element to it. So anyway, this is just an interesting discussion. Well, We're not going to define it here. Chapter in, in Hebrews, it, it oh, the, he, the Hall of Fame in chapter 11. It yeah. ends with the suffering and the faith of those. This doesn't mean those who are kind of too sort you know, persecuted and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like various people. And then there's the faith of George Mueller. George Mueller, I don't know if you know the name, but George Mueller was a man in England, Bristol, I think, was where he was from, and he ran an orphanage, several orphanages, and he never asked for money, ever. It was one of his hallmarks. In fact, those who tried to raise money by doing their send us your gifts and all whatnot, people will bring up George Mueller and saying, there was a man of faith. And every, if you read his book on or, or books about him, the George Mueller Man of Faith, they would have nothing in their coffers. They would not be able to feed the orphans tomorrow. And that morning before breakfast, someone came to the door with enough to feed everybody. It happened every single time. And his prayer was, God will provide. He had confidence of God's power to accomplish his will and a belief in the miraculous and it happened over and over and over again. Great example. Great example. All right, good. Let's go to the next one. Miracles. <clears throat> now, miracles, healing, prophecy, and tongues, those four, are considered the more, let's just say, visible, or ecstatic, or um, uh, the miraculous gifts. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on those that think that they don't happen today and those that think that they do. But he has separated out miracles, and it's in both the first list and beginning of chapter 12 and verses 8 through 10, but also listed again in chapter 12, 28, and 30. But it's not listed in Romans, not listed in Ephesians. The Greek word 
miracles is the Greek word dunamis, which means power. Used 119 times in the New Testament. This is not an uncommon word. We have examples. Jesus alone, all the miracles that he performed. I mean, just innumerable. I mean, it is the, break, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Just, you want to start there. And you just go on and on and on and on. And then you had the apostles, when they were sent out, they were performing miracles regularly as a demonstration of God's power in people's lives. It was a, like an, an authentication of what they were doing. You also have miracles all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you know that little one, like the parting of the Red Sea? You know, no biggie. Uh, but that was a miracle. It was something completely supernatural. So I try to define here, to be enabled by God to perform actions which witnesses acknowledge are of supernatural origin. I was trying to think of a way to phrase it. To say, well, again, what is the purpose of miracles? What are the purpose of the gifts? It's for the common good for the church. So if someone is able to perform miracles, it is an action to acknowledge that they are of God before witnesses. Um, goodness, Acts 9.40, you have the raising for the dead of Dorcas by Peter. Kind of a miraculous story. Yeah, not just kind of. It is a major miracle by one of the apostles, not Paul. Not Jesus, but Peter. This is another word right here that we tend to overuse the term and to diffuse its meaning. For example, there is a movie <clears throat> called Miracle on Ice. When the USA beat the Soviets in hockey in what year was it? 19, 1980? 1980? Yeah, it was miraculous. I mean, there was no way in the world that the USA was going to win that hockey match. Russia was undefeatable. They could not be beaten by anybody in the world and had not been beaten for years. And then, so the miracle on ice. But we use the word, and then we use it for, you know, frequently, saying, oh, that happened, and that was a miracle. Or... Boy, you know, I was turning left and that guy blew through the stop line and he missed me by six inches. Whew! It was a miracle I didn't get hit. You see how we use it? We use it commonly. And it's not a common thing. One definition I came across is a miracle or miracles are a temporary suspension of the laws that govern this world as we commonly observe them. Isn't that a great definition? A temporary, temporary suspension of the laws that govern this world as we commonly observe them. Yeah. I, I, I believe I've experienced a miracle actually as a kid. Uh, Bethany Home Road at a mid-block crossing, I think, uh, 21st Avenue. There's a drugstore my friend I used to go. Five lanes of traffic, people going 45 to 50. We thought there was a gap. This car stopped. Well, this guy was a van. Couldn't see past it. I started to bolt to try and get across Bethany, and my body was stopped at the edge of the van as the car went within inches of my body. I mean, I don't know why I physically stopped. And I mean, I went back. My friend who was behind me just like, how'd you do that? I don't know. I didn't see the car. Couldn't see it. Um, I had no other explanation. It was about 11 or 12 at the time. That is miraculous. There's no question. Yeah. Now, is that a gift of miracles? Is <laughs> no. another question. <laughs> because what is Paul trying to say is the gift of miracles. And you'll notice here that it's almost like, is that a header with subsets beneath it? Uh, not necessarily. He doesn't break it out that way. I think it, it happens in the United States, but it's more prevalent in countries 
that do not have the sustenance and the things that we have. We hear of it in India or in Africa and oh, yeah. in various um, South America, just unbelievable, well, unbelievable miracles because they do mm -hmm. suspend the natural line. Well, and, you, and usually they're related to healing uh, or something of that nature, but or, healing or, is a separate gift. Or even military trucks stopped and not nobody knowing why the just sure. they they would describe some amazing present that that kept them back from going yep. forth and people were allowed to escape. I mean, it's, it's way beyond healing. It's it's a it's amazing. There's so many of these stories that are prevalent. Um, there's a I can't remember the title now. Book by a professor of Fuller, um, Charles Kraft. Um, before he came, became a professor of missiology missions at Fuller Seminary, he was a missionary in Africa. And he talks throughout his book of these extraordinary movements of the Spirit of God in miraculous ways over and over and over again. And he said, the thing was, I went there believing that none of it was real, that none of it could ever happen because it ended in the first century. And I walk into this village and the next thing I know, bam, things start happening. Well, what is going on? Is this of God? Or is this of Satan? And yet he started to become much more aware of the supernatural world because of this and it opened up an entire vista for him in his teaching. <coughs> so again, we have this word that's a big word, but it's hard, we, we can define it, but how do you apply it? And that we don't really have a good answer for. Because you go right to the very next one in our list, healing, is considered miraculous. Healing, and this is my definition here, a means through which God makes people whole physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. Now that may be a broader definition than what most would be comfortable with, but I felt I needed to be broad in its definition because if we limit it only to the healing of the physical body, that isn't the only kind of healing that can take place. Some people can be healed emotionally and are just as powerful. But what is the gift of healing? Well, go over to the notes in the right-hand column. The Greek word is plural. It is not the gift of healing, it's the gift of healings. And it's that it is a plural word throughout the New Testament. That particular Greek word, iamaton, I-A-M-A-T-O-N, iamaton, typically referred just simply to a return to health. But it's a plural word, which suggests that possibly different people have different healing gifts. So you might have someone who can have the gift of healing physically, another that can have a gift of healing emotionally. Possibly, I don't know. And I'm not here to create um, definition or um, that is the only way to look at it. I'm just wanting to say let's explore this together. But then read the rest of what I have here. Some state that a person with a healing gift will not be able to heal at will but only when God wills. For example, Paul was able to heal many people. We have examples of it next. But apparently was unable to heal at other times. And we have examples. He wasn't even able to heal himself. Remember he had the thorn in the flesh that just would never go away? Now, you know good and well he prayed for that to be taken away from him. You know he did. Whatever it was, whether it was emotional, whether it was spiritual, whether it was physical, we don't know what it was, but he talks about that thorn in the flesh more than one time, which meant it bothered him. But he was never healed of it. Interesting.
I have an interesting background with the concept of healing. It's my own family. I may have mentioned this before in some previous classes, but my father, uh, he passed away in 92, but he grew up in a Lutheran congregation in Two thousand, sorry, like 2012, sorry. Yeah, why I said 92, I have no idea. Anyway, 2012. So he grew up in the Chicago area, Maywood Oak Park, um, in, the, in a Lutheran church where healings were performed by his great-grandmother. Now, let's just think about that for a second. We're talking about Lutherans. From Germany. Hmm? From, Germany. from Germany that were charismatic by our definition today. Okay, that's just weird to start with. Well, but in every other way, very rigid, except for that. Oh yeah, they were extremely conservative. Very conservative. I have these very ancient pictures of the great-grandmother from 1886 or something. She's this short little, you know, fire hydrant of a woman and the big tall grandfather with the long beard and very stern and everything else, she would stand up in front of the congregation and say, there is someone in this room who has, and she would name an ailment. And there would be someone who would stand up and say, well, that's me. And then she would pray and they would be healed from the pulpit, from the front. A woman with that gift. This is what he grew up in. So imagine my consternation when I discovered all this as an as a older teenager and young adult, when I began looking into my, you know, the background and whatnot, that my dad, when they left, when he left Chicago, was the only one in the family to leave Chicago, the only one in the family to marry a non-German. So he was kind of the persona non grata of the family and moved to Alaska that he joined the Southern Baptist Church, which basically taught that the gift of healing ended in the first century. And I go, Dad, this is what I'm being taught in church, and this is what you grew up in over here. How do you square the two? All through his life, in his discussions with me, he believed in the power of healing and the gift of healing never wavered. He would pray fervently for healing. Did he have the gift of healing? No. And he knew he didn't have it. Well, his own mother was in a wheelchair. Yeah, his own mother was in a wheelchair all his life. He took care of her in a wheelchair. I mean, she was never healed. So you have all this going on. He tells me my story when I was a baby. I was born, and then I got some infant illness where I began to waste away. I began to lose weight dramatically to the point that apparently I was skeletal. No flesh, no, no fat on the, I mean, I was just a little skeleton with flesh on it. And they didn't know what was wrong. I had been in the hospital for two or three weeks and the doctor says the prognosis is not good. This is, this is, we have no idea. And they told my mom and dad we have, I think it was 12 or 14 different medical choices. And we only have a chance to perform one of them before your son will die. And we don't know which one to pick. My dad said, I went into your room and with your mom, we laid our hands on you and we prayed fervently for the doctors to have the wisdom to choose the right one out of the 14 or 15 choices. He said, the next day, they gave you that medication and boom, you pinked up, you started to gain weight, and here you are today. Son, you are a walking miracle. Now, that kind of background so you want to say, so you can't say that God doesn't heal because we know that's not the case. He does. The gift of healing, however, the spiritual gift of healing 
is something different where you have an individual who is gifted with this ability to come in and to lay hands on whatever in whatever form that healing can occur problem comes in that this is a readily misunderstood and misused gift I actually found the National Federation of Spiritual Healers founded in 1954 in England to have a group of healers spiritual healers who would go into hospitals or whatnot and pray for spiritual energy to heal people they are authorized in 600 hospitals in the UK they're still around um, their founder gave a demonstration of spiritual healing to 6,000 people at once at the Royal Albert Hall in the 60s. You can take classes. There's approximately 6,500 members of this organization. They're an organization of professional healers. Now, right away, you, start, you have to start asking. Of course, it's very quick to say this is evidently not a church organization. Not even close. Because you can sign up for distant healing online, if you like. You put in your name, your, your email address, the malady for which that you need healing for, and they will, they will actually send you healing for a period of six weeks. All it means is they got your email address. <laughs> but it's a means for them to gain followers to apply for distance healing. And you can also have energy infusion parties where they will, if you gather between six and 20 people in your house, you can have someone uh, come online and teach you chakra balancing or uh, sensing energy classes or the healing circle or breathing, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously very new age, but it's under this concept of healing. Obviously that's very secular, and we can go, okay, that has no bearing here, but this is what's out there. You have those who will, on television or in other very visible places, they will make general pronouncements. If you send us $150, we will send you this prayer cloth that we have prayed over, and if you then lay that on your heart, you will be healed. Okay, that's easy to mock. That's easy to, at least for some people, to discern as going, that's not right. But I ask the question, when you talk about healing, the gift of healing, if, for all I know, there's someone in our congregation that has that gift. And the beauty of that is, I don't know who they are. And I don't need to know. These are not gifts that you suddenly say, well, bring them up front so that you can do what my great-great-grandmother did and name people in the congregation and heal them from the stage. That's not what this is talking about, I don't think. Am I going to say then my great-great-grandmother did not have that gift? No, I don't have that ability to discern whether or not that's true. I never met her. Goodness. She was gone well before I was ever born. You note here, I have a quote from A.B. Simpson, who, is, um, who wrote a book, well, it's been over 100 years now, called The Gospel of Healing. It's a very influential book for A.W. Tozer. Um, he wrote around the same time of Andrew Murray, Oswald Chambers. Uh, you have that, that group of writers who believed in the full power of the spirit but also had an incredible balance with scripture. A.B. Simpson was healed of something in his life, and then he wrote this, I solemnly accept this truth as part of thy word. When I take the Lord Jesus as my physical life, I solemnly agree to use this blessing for the glory of God and the good of others, and to speak of it or minister in connection with it in any way which God may call me or others may need me in the future. He had the gift of healing. And he would go into situations and pray. Sometimes the person was healed, sometimes they weren't. But he performed that gift of healing. 
Where this gets uh, kind of messed up, and this just was last month, you may have read about it, where there was that evangelical church where one of the pastor's children, I think it was eight-month-old baby, passed away. And they refused to bury the child. Instead, the entire church prayed for the baby's resurrection. And they made a big deal about it. It went on Facebook. It ended up in the news. It started spreading everywhere because this was considered not a fringe charismatic church. This was considered a fairly um, middle-of-the-road evangelical, not necessarily conservative by that definition, but you know they weren't on that end. They were kind of in the middle. And it was a big deal. They were having 24-hour prayer vigils, day after day after day after day after day, praying for the resurrection of the child, saying, hey, if Peter could raise Dorcas, we can raise this little girl. Well, obviously, after eight days, it ain't going to happen. And they had to have the funeral. Well, you do something like that, that becomes that visible, what does that do for the church as a whole? The body of Christ. Those who are unbelievers laugh. and go, you people are just nuts. What are you doing? And yet, on the other side, you say, well, then it comes back to the issue of, did they have enough faith? Faith becomes a commodity again. Were they doing the wrong thing? Were they doing the right thing? And they, they created this firestorm over compassion for one of their own. <clears throat> and it didn't happen. Imagine if it had. Imagine if that child suddenly, on day six, took a deep breath and came back from the dead. That would have been a miracle. But it would not have happened. That isn't how God works, I don't think. So, I know we have just run into our time limit. We can bring this discussion back up next week as you think about it, because I don't want to walk away from the topic of healing here until we have a chance for the rest of you to talk um, and bring up some ideas. <clears throat> bring the chart back with you next week. I'll bring more copies in case um, you forget yours. But uh, let's pray so we can end our time. Lord, thank you for our discussion and our opportunity here to <clears throat> look into your word and look into this vast topic. And vast is a, is a word that <clears throat> doesn't even cover it. The vast topic of the spiritual gifts and what they mean for us and what they mean for the church. I ask, Lord, that as we pray and as we seek your face and seek your glory, that these spiritual gifts, whatever ones we may have, come alive, and that we may use them for your glory and for the common good. In Jesus' name, amen.